at the end of Romans 1 through 4, we did a review of Romans 1 through 4. And my plan is to do that regularly. And the great news is that Paul does this for us, really, in Romans 8, 31 through 39. These truths are certainly built on what we see in Romans 8, but I, w- I dare say that they go all, they stretch all the way back to Romans 5. Everything here again rests on the character of God. Everything points back to what God has first done. And, and what he is doing here, again, he is writing to create assurance in the hearts and minds of believers. And Paul asks five questions here. I have combined it to four questions because you know how succinct I like to be in my sermons. I don't want to take up much of your time. We want to get y'all out here on time. So I've combined it to four questions, really because two of the questions go together. They're really two sides of the same coin. And I want to highlight these today because obviously not only they're in the text, but they do review they do bring home all the truths that we have seen in Romans 5 through 8. And Paul summarizes them. And if we would, these are questions that if we ever doubt God's faithfulness, if you ever are in a circumstance, a situation, and you doubt God's faithfulness, I'm begging you, go back and read Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you ever doubt the truthfulness of the gospel and whether that is still true for you due to some circumstance in your life, no matter if that circumstance is due to your sin, due to other people's sin, or you have no idea what it's due to, go back, believer, and read Romans 8, 31 through 39. These notes I've given you, that, that's for the part of the reason why I give you these notes is so you can go back. You will probably long have discarded these notes. We, we give you binders if you want to keep them. You can. You can get a binder up here. And, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So go back to Romans 8, 31 through 39. Again, that's the beauty of preaching the word. You can lose my notes. Just go back to the text. And you'll find my notes. Whatever the source, whatever, whatever you're going through in your life, go back to Romans 8, 31 through 39. And the main point you'll see on your handout there, the main point that I want us to walk away from here today, and and these are always fun texts for a preacher because it's all right there. I mean, you know, you probably don't need a seminary. Maybe you don't need a seminary degree to do what I do, some would say, but you certainly don't need it for 831 through 39. I'm just going to ask you the questions that Paul asks, all right? But I do think it's important that we dig deep and find out the answer and why behind the answer. And so the main point, there is nothing here. There is nothing. Not only is there is nothing, there is nobody that is capable of separating us from the love of God through Christ and undoing what God has promised to us through the gospel. Now, I've given you a major hint right here in the main point. Some of you, I know, like to guess what the fill-ins are, all right? I've given you a mate. Melissa, you don't count because you've already seen it. 
My kids don't count because we already talked about it. I've given you a major hint here in the main point as to what the answers to the questions are. Okay? This is like an open book test. All right? So, nothing and nobody. Look at verse 31 again. What shall we say to these things? Paul, Paul is pointing back to specifically to verses 28 through 30. Let's remind ourselves. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What shall we say to that? Paul is going to tell us. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. What shall we say to that? Paul is going to tell us. And those who, and these whom He predestined, He called. And those who, these whom He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He glorified. What shall we say to these things? Paul is going to tell us. But Paul is also summarizing all of chapter 8. He's saying, how do we rightly respond to these monumental truths? How do we respond? Based upon the fact that God has done everything needed for salvation to occur. He has sovereignly done everything. And we, we, we looked at man's responsibility and all those. But God, God has done this, that our assurance rests upon the sovereignty of God. How do we rightly respond? And Paul's answer is with assurance. We can be assured of a permanent standing before God. And, you, and Paul teaches this here through five, what I said five questions, but, but I'm going to say four questions. And I'm going to combine two of them. And he gives the answer. I want to give you the answer. When, when you doubt God's goodness, when you doubt His faithfulness, when you doubt your standing before God for whatever reasons, go back to these questions, believer, and allow the assurance of God to wash over and nourish your souls. Alright, so question one. Question one. Look at verse 31. Here's the first question. If God is for us, who, the word there is for, if God is for us, who can be against us? And, and feel the weight of this verse. I, I would argue that the, the weight of everything that Paul has said from Romans 5 until now, really you could go back to Romans 1. Every single thing that he has said in Romans is summed up in that question right there. If God is for you, who really can be against you? I mean, think about that. If God made a way when there was nothing righteous in you, see Romans 3, when God made a way to rightly declare you to be righteous, so that he would be, Romans 3, 21 through 26, that God would be just, that he would be righteous 
in declaring sinners righteous. Remember, that was the main, that's the biggest question in the gospel. That's the issue with the gospel. How does a holy, just God forgive sinners and declare them righteous and maintain his holiness? That's the biggest issue in the gospel. How does a, how does a holy God rightly forgive you of your sin and declare you righteous and bring you in as a child? How does he do that? And we looked at that in Romans 3, 21 through 26. Really, the gospel is a vindication of God's righteousness. Not only of declaring you who are a believer to be righteous, but, but, but even declaring Old Testament saints, he says, to be righteous. Every, every blessing that Paul has mentioned is summed up right here. And, that's, and the way that Paul phrases this question is very important, but it's telling for us, okay? Paul begins the question with this. If if God is for us, Paul begins the question stating what God has done for you. And that's always where you have to start. This is always first. We, we've said this many times. The, in, in the Bible, the indicative always precedes the imperative. What God has done always precedes what he calls you to do in response. And, 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 and Paul writes this way. We've said it. Go, go read Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, tell you what God has done. Chapters 4 through 6, tell you how then you should respond. Romans chapters 1 through 11, tell you what God has done. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living... This is not moralism. This is responding to what God has done. Galatians, it, all throughout. And Paul begins the question by focusing our attention on God. What he has done always sets the stage for what we're to obey and what we're to do. Again, this is not moralism, this is not positive thinking, this isn't just doing, gritting your teeth and getting through it. This is looking at what God has done, looking at the truthfulness of who God is and what He has done, and rightly responding to what God has done. That's why we said a couple weeks ago that everything rests, it rests upon God and His character. That's why we can be secure. You and I are far too fickle. To be depended on ultimately for something as important as this. And think about this. And this is why I say, if God is for us, think about this. Because if Paul, that garners one answer. If Paul had simply said, who is against us? That would garner an entirely different answer. Because there's lots of things that are against us. Sin. This world, death, Satan, other principalities that Paul will mention, other sinners, people at, people at your work, they may be against you. People at your school, they may hate you and be against you. Listen, for some of you in here, the reality is your own family members 
are against you. This is real. But, but Paul doesn't, you notice where Paul starts. Paul doesn't fix, say, fix your eyes on who is against you. Paul says, start by fixing your eyes on who is for you. Again, allow your circumstances to be interpreted by who you know God to be. Don't allow your circumstances to interpret who you think God might be. Go to who God is and allow that to inform your circumstances. Whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever person or thing or circumstances against you, here's the reality. God is for you. Start there. That's where you have to start. When, when you feel the reality of, of this opposition, when you feel abandoned, even maybe by God, remind yourself of this question and its answer. And here's the answer. Since God is for us, fill it in. Say it. Nothing. Nothing. Let that wash over your soul. Since God is for you, nothing is really against you. That's the reality. If God were not for you, you couldn't say that. Listen, nothing, nothing is frustrating his plan. Nothing is frustrating his, his plan to conform you, believer, to the image of his son. Again, that's what we saw, and we'll look at it in a minute, but in Romans 8, 28, all of, this, all of this rests upon God, not you and I. Because of the fact that God is for us, that changes everything. But that's the truth that you have to start with. You have to build upon that. No matter what you face, start here with the reality, God is for me, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't make that statement. He could be for you. But it's going to require repentance. It's going to require a turning. It's going to change allegiance. Listen, and again, even here, are we called to be faithful? Absolutely. Does our faithfulness matter? Does our decisions matter? Absolutely. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a person sows, guess what? They reap. But even here, go back to the fact, God is for you, believer. Even, even in my own stupidity and foolishness, God is for me and it does not frustrate his plan to conform me. We saw it even in Genesis 50. In Genesis 45, we looked at it specifically with Joseph. Jo the sinfulness of Joseph's brothers did not frustrate. They only ushered in the sovereign plan of God to take Joseph to the place and time where God wanted Joseph to be so that he would be able to provide for God's people in a time of famine. Even, we said, even your sin doesn't frustrate the plan of God. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to be responsible. But nothing... And you see it on your handout. No matter what we face, it cannot undo what God has first done. And what he's accomplishing through us. God is for us, believers. No matter what we face, it doesn't mean that God is not for us. 
I would urge you to preach this over and over and over to yourself, no matter what you face. God is not against you. He's shaping you. He's forming you. He's working it all to good. That's Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God is for us, therefore there is nothing that truly can be against us. By faith, receive this. By faith, live in light of this. No matter what you have, no matter what you will, or what you are facing, understand this. Start here. God is for you if you are in Christ Jesus. So question two. Question one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Question two. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him fill it in? Freely give us all things. I'm, I'm, I'm not even trying to be cute here. We're just going to quote it straight out of the Bible. Again, all of this focus attention where? Where, did, where does even this question start? It starts with what God did. It starts in the character and the personhood and the actions of God. I mean, if, if you ever wonder whether God is for you, if you ever wonder whether God is the giver of good gifts, even when we don't understand it, look to the cross. Look back to the cross. I mean, and, and again, Paul is, I, I would argue that Paul is hearkening our attention back to what he said in Romans chapter 5. Flip back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Listen to what Paul writes in verses 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God... In, in different, differentiated from what man might do, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here, listen, verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through, through Him. You, you understand the, what God is saving you from? In salvation, he's saving you from his wrath. Please hear that. Even way back to Romans 2, the ungodly may or may not realize this, unbelievers may not realize this, but every single day that they stiff-arm God, Romans 2, verse, I believe it's verse 5, says that you are storing up more and more wrath for the day of judgment. I believe that's Romans 2. I can look. Let's look real quick. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. And yet God has made a way for that wrath to be forgiven. Again, for if while, look at verse 10. If while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Is that not almost exactly what he's saying in verse 32? If God didn't spare his son while you were an enemy... 
Do you think he's not going to follow through now that you're a son and a daughter? And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Listen, you see it on your handout. The cross is the deepest expression of God's love for his people and that he is a giver of all we need. The deepest expression of God's love is the cross. Go back to the cross. Get our eyes off our circumstances. Get our, quit listening to the lies that Satan and this world uses to lie about God. A John 8, 44, it says Satan is the father of all lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. He's a liar. And here's what he wants to tell you. If God really loved you, your circumstances would be different. If God really was for you, your circumstances would be different. Those are lies. And, and if we're honest, it's, it's, these, it's, it's the times of suffering, really it's the times of suffering that we doubt His goodness. It's the times of suffering that we doubt whether He's for us. It's these times of suffering that, that these truths don't seem to jive. And yet even suffering, even suffering is a gift, can be a gift of God. And will be used to shape you. Listen to Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as his sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Listen to this. We oftentimes think we're not God's sons, that he's forsaken us when we do suffer our discipline. I would argue the opposite is true. We ought to be concerned if he's not disciplining us and shaping us. Because listen to verse 8. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. What's God up to? He's shaping you and me, believer, into the likeness of His Son. And how does He do that? Oftentimes through suffering. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. Because Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those whom He loves. He treats you as a son. He treats you as a daughter. And Romans 8, 28, what is He doing? He is conforming you to the image of His Son. So that, verse 29, you will be the, Jesus will be the firstborn among many brethren. What is God up to? He's shaping you. He's molding you. He's conforming you. And you know what He's doing in the middle of that? He's demonstrating his love for you, right? That's why I discipline my kids. I love them. They don't always think that. Last night, we had to deal with Sarah Grace. You know, she was mad. I mean, I was the worst father in the world because for the fifth night in a row, I would not make her milkshake. Seriously, that's what it was all about. She's going to argue with me that last night or Saturday, Friday night, I did not make her a milkshake. I said, Sarah, now we, I wasn't going to make you one, but then I caved in and made you one, but I made you one. And we sat right here and drank it together. No, you didn't. Sarah, 
Then all kinds of stuff broke out. I was like, go to your room. You're done for the night. Go to, you know, we're, I'm done. I'm not arguing with a fifth grader over this. Like, I made you a milkshake. The empty ice cream container, unfortunately, is still sitting on the island that I forgot to throw away. So you're, you're barking up the wrong tree here. This is the one case that I didn't do what I should have, one of the many cases, and it actually worked in my favor. You see, Karen, me being lazy and not want to go, it worked. Sarah, there's an empty ice cream container. I gave you, she's adamant. But why, why, I'm trying to mold, I'm trying to get something out of her. I'm disciplining her. Because I love her. She didn't receive it that way. And we, even Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you not only to believe on Jesus Christ, but to suffer for his sake. That word there, granted, literally means grace. You're being conformed to the image of your Savior when you suffer. And, and he's, again, he's shaping, he's molding, and he's conforming. Thus, even in suffering, even in suffering, we can answer the question, will God not also with Jesus freely give us all things? Here's the answer. Since God did not spare his own son, there is what? Nothing that he will withhold from us that we need. That's, that we need. I mean, fo- you, you just follow the logic. From greater to lesser. If God did the hard thing, i.e. crucify his son, pay the propitiation in order for you to be redeemed, what's the easy thing? Keeping you as a son or a daughter. Providing for you daily. If God were ever going to back out, listen, it ain't on just providing me a little bit of daily bread. It's on his son dying on a cross. That's where you back out. And that's why I say the cross is the deepest expression. If God could get you into his family, he certainly is capable of keeping you in his family. Again, if he was ever going to back out, if he was ever going to withhold something that you needed, he would have withheld the cross. And again, the cross, totally undeserved, totally unmerited. God would have been no less God if he did not crucify his son and let all humanity that had turned their back on him, all of them go to hell. God would be no less God. And yet he interacted and he initiated and he made a way that you could get to heaven and be reconciled. Even that, I hate, I, really be reconciled to God. Let's use biblical language here. Really, the goal is to be reconciled to God. God did that at his own cost. And again, go back to Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You've been adopted. You, you, you've been given the privilege of calling him father. That was the hard thing. Ma- uh, making a way that he would maintain his righteousness and he could grace you with righteousness, that was the hard thing. Again, even 1 John 3, 1, 
See how great a love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Who did that? God did that. And, and love while we were enemies. Love while, Romans 3, we hated him. Again, that's why the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 13, 5, and 6, I'll, God says, again, he's quoting the Old Testament, but he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Why? Because you're his. Because he crucified his son for you. And nothing compromises that. The hard thing, the costly thing, was making a way for sinners to be forgiven for sinners to be rightly declared righteous and God to maintain his righteousness in doing that. God accomplished that through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Keeping you is easy. That's easy. All right, question three. Question three. Go to verse 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified, justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is. He who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Here's question three. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And this is where I combined them. And condemn us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect and condemn us? And listen, I combine these two because they go together. You say, Chris, what do you mean? The purpose of bringing a charge against somebody is to what? Is to condemn them. You know why Satan accuses you? It's to condemn you. Why, why, did, Rome, why did Paul begin this entire chapter with Romans 8.1? There, there is therefore now what? No What's the greatest, again, condemnation. Condemnation because of our sin. The reason anyone would bring a charge against you is to condemn you. The whole point of a charge is to condemn, to show your guilt. They go hand in hand. Again, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and the gospel teaches us that God the one, what he's saying here, the God, the one true judge and Lord over all, who alone has the true authority to condemn somebody eternally, has declared you to be righteous. Let that sink in. God has transferred you, Romans 5, 12 through 21. He has transferred you, Colossians 1, 12 and 13 and 14. He has transferred you from the realm that was ruled by Adam and ruled by sin and death. He has transferred you into the realm of his son, which is ruled by eternal life and righteousness. Therefore, no exact, no, nothing will stand. Again, Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned over from Adam until Moses, even 
over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Here it is. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one many died, much more did the grace of God, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression. Here it is, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. There is a new title, believer, that hangs over your head. It no longer says condemned. It says justified. Believe that. And the ruler, the king, the judge, the Lord of all has declared that over you, believer. So it doesn't matter what anyone below him says about you. It doesn't. None of their accusations can stand. Therefore, we can say with confidence the answer to the third question, since God has freely justified believers by grace through faith, here's, a little, here's the second fill-in from the, from the main point. Nobody. Nobody can make a charge. I could have put no thing in there, but I thought, I don't want to deal with it. Nobody. I mean, even, even we, we quoted 1 John 3.1. Listen to 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, listen, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Not only did Jesus die to make a way for us to be saved, Jesus lives to keep us saved. He ever lives to make intercession for us. You have the greatest defense attorney that has ever lived. No offense to the attorneys that are in here. And every time you're accused, and listen, the accusation could be true. It is true. Do you still battle with sin? We dealt with that in Romans 6 and Romans 7. Indwelling sin, we still battle with it. Can Satan levy an accusation against you that practically could be true? Yeah. And you know what Jesus says? I died for that one. It's under the blood. Hey, that's part of Isaiah 118. Though, though Chris's sins were scarlet, I washed them white as snow. Hey, I, that, that's Psalm 103.12 for Chris. I have separated him from his sins as far as the east is from the west. New identity. Chris Basham will never be identified by his sins again. He will forever now be identified as my son. And the banner that hangs over him is justified. Justified. I mean, this is... This is Romans 8, 1 through 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, 
and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the spirit, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The requirement of the law has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. It has been satisfied. Righteousness has been procured for you through faith. Do we fall short of the law? Absolutely. Does it separate us from the love of God? Nope. Why? Because Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly. And Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Now, it may hinder fellowship. Don't think for one second, that was Romans 6. Don't think for one second we just go live willy-nilly and how we want to live. And that, That's not what he's saying at all. But my position will not be touched. Because it is secure in Christ. The banner that hangs over Chris Basham's head and every other believer is justified, forgiven, adopted. Feel the assurance here, the, the new identity, the new creature that you are in Christ, believer. Let that wash over you. Let that secure you. No condemnation. Why? Because Jesus Christ was condemned on your behalf. He was crushed so you would not have to be, believer. He took the wrath of God, therefore you don't have to, believer. Fourth question. Look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The word there obviously is separate. And this really is the pinnacle of everything. God loves us. And he cannot be separated from us. And really that statement sets the tone for verses 36 through 39. Listen to what he says. And really the remainder of 35, forgive me. Again, going back to the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Look what Paul says. Will tribulation? Nope. Will distress? Nope. Will persecution? Nope. Will famine? Nope. Will nakedness? Nope. Will peril? Nope. Will sword? Nope. Will the fact that for your sake we're being, for God's sake we're being put to death all day long, that we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered? Quoting uh, Psalm 44 there? Nope. Here's Paul's answer. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Amen? It's not the fact that we won't go through those things. It's the fact that those things won't separate us from God and His love for us. 
for, and, and, and beyond that, not only will they not separate us, they'll continue to mold us into who he wants us to be. That's why Paul can say we overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just skirt by. The very thing that Satan wants to use to separate you, to make you feel condemned, to make you feel unloved, is the very thing that God uses to conform you to his son, i.e. to make you feel loved. You see how you can say we overwhelmingly conquer? There's nothing. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, listen, nor any other created thing. Like, Paul is covering his bases here. Because somebody's going to say, well, what about this? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Will they try to make you feel unloved? They will. Go back to the gospel. Go back to these passages. Go back to Romans eight seventeen, And if children heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ, listen, if indeed we suffer with him so that we will be glorified with him. Same thing he said in Acts, through much tribulation we will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who are willing to suffer, those who are willing to hang in, those are my, those are my kids. And the answer, the answer goes without saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Again, that's why Paul could say in verse 37 that we're more than conquerors. And, and as I was thinking about this, and November is Orphan Sunday, and, and Katie Finkley is helping, and others are putting together, we want to celebrate what God is doing here through that we're going to do that on December 8th. But I thought about it this week. And, and I was reminded of the, the gracious reminders of these truths that God has birthed in the hearts of so many here at Odessa. And every, time, every time I see these, now they're not all kids, Many some have grown up, but I'm reminded of the gospel and these truths here. I think about the Harveys and Grayer and Zaley and Margot. And I would say to TJ and Christy, is there anything that can separate you from those three kids? No. No. I think about their parents with Sabrina and Gage. Good or bad, is there anything that can separate you from them? No. No, there's not. Think about the Cordovas and Chloe. There's nothing that can separate them. Think about the Rainers who just brought home Emory Page Thursday. And thank you for Leah Wild and your ministry and helping coordinate that and looking out for these, these babies. There's nothing, not, this, not even the every two hours getting up and feeding them. Nothing. I think about Jeff and Madeline Knight and Elias. There's nothing. Nothing. Josh and Katie Finkley and Arela. There's nothing. I think about the Guthries and Sophia and Victoria and Layla. 
I mean, they're fighting for not only the Harveys, the Guthries, they're fighting for children that aren't even technically theirs, and they're fighting for them. The Stewarts and Sawyer, the Hudsons and Kingston, the Thayers and Camden and Michaela, again, fighting for kids that aren't even theirs, according to the law, right? The Lashbrooks and Zachary. Debbie Rary and Jocelyn Colton, Luke Page, who serves in our student ministry, adopted. And again, I knew as soon as I made this list, I was working through it. If I, if I missed you, please forgive me. But listen, here's the point. Are you for them? Is there anything, you, you, you adopted them, is there anything that you would not do for those kids? Is there anything that would make you walk away and undo what the state has declared to be factual? The answer is no. Is there anything that you would allow to condemn them? No. Anything that can separate you from them from your love? No. You did the hardest thing. The hardest thing was bringing someone that is not your own in. That's the hardest thing. For some of you, it came with a huge financial price. Hard thing. Will you not now freely do everything else when the hardest thing has been done? And, and that's what, again, you, you say, Chris, why assure like this? And, and ask yourself, why would Paul write? Why would we spend all these weeks giving you this assurance, it's not for you to live for yourself. Paul would not write Romans 8 if Christianity was pray a prayer, put a little card in your back pocket, and go about living like you've always lived for the rest of your life, but when you die, you just get to flash your card and go. That's not, Paul would not need to write Romans 8 if that was Christianity. It would make no sense. No need to assure anyone of that. If it was just go forward and live however you want to live, no opposition, no just blend in with culture, look like every other student at your high school or your middle school or your elementary, look like every other employee at work, look like every other person in your neighborhood, that's not at all why he would assure. If it wasn't attack that indwelling sin and fight it every day, that that indwelling sin that still remains in you, believer. If that wasn't a fight, and if we weren't going to lose some of those battles, there's no read for Romans 8. But those are realities. And the trouble is this. We're tempted to live and and to to act as if we're not God's children sometimes, as if we're not enemies of the world, or if we don't still struggle with sin. And when we blend in, when our lives look like everybody else's, when there's nothing that marks us, there's no need for Romans 8. Romans 8 was meant to free us to live the life that God's called us to live, namely to His glory, no matter the cost. It's meant to free us to go take great risks for the gospel. It's to free us to be hated by the world and to be loved by God. That's the freedom of Romans 8. 
And we don't need Romans 8 if, we don't, if, if it's not a big deal, if we're just going to live how we want to live and do what we want to do and think we can be a believer. And You don't need Romans 8. But if you want to be on the front lines and you want to experience real intimacy with God and really, really obey what God's called you to do, namely pick up a, pick up a weapon and fight and hate your sin and love your enemies and share the good news with your loved ones and your family members knowing that they may reject you, you'll need Romans 8. Romans 8 will be the biggest treasure you have in the Bible if you want to live like that. But if you want to be in your school and nobody knows your students, if you want to, be, if you want to live in your school and you want nobody really to know you're any different, then, then forget Romans 8. You don't need Romans 8. If you want to be like every other employee in your workplace and blend in and just go along with the tide, you don't need Romans 8. If you want to live like every other family in your neighborhood and blend in and never have anybody against you, you don't need Romans 8. If you want to look like the rest of the world, you don't need Romans 8. But if you want to take this serious and glorify your Father and see Him do immeasurably more than you'd ever ask or think, see John 14, that greater things, if you want to see Him do greater things, listen, you'll come back to Romans 8 every single day of your life because the world, there will be people in the world that will hate you, will despise you, will reject you, and the only thing you'll have left is that God loves you and that's the only thing you'll need. And he'll, he'll raise your head up in the morning and you'll go about doing the same thing, seeking to glorify him no matter what the cost. Why? Because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Friendship with the world, the Bible could not be more clear, is enmity towards God. We cannot serve two masters. And the gospel does not make us immune from trouble. It makes us immune from the effects of trouble. Namely, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the point. And the truths of Romans 8, they ought to free you to take tremendous risks for the gospel. They ought to free us the rest of the world could hate our guts. You know what? God loves me. Right? Isn't that what you tell your kids sometimes when they come home and, and, and they've been mistreated or whatever? You know what you tell them? I grab their face and I say, I love you. You know what? That's all that matters. God's grabbing every single one of our faces this morning of his, who are his children and he's looking you dead in the eye through Romans 8 and he's saying, I love you. Go live for me. 